Thank you, O Lord, for the gift of love, which is the greatest of all things. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. It's all about love. First John says, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. As many theologians have noted, love is the grain of the universe. Presiding Bishop Michael Curry has said, if it's not about love, it's not about God. And in today's reading from 1 Corinthians, we heard the greatest is love. Now this, I hope and pray, is not news to anyone, that love is ultimately all that matters. But love is something like the vast expanse of space, limitless and full of wonder. You all know I talk about love a lot, but it is a topic that literally could not be exhausted in all of eternity. On these Sundays after the Epiphany, we're continuing to think about baptism what it is and what it does. And for today, the aspect of baptism that I want to lift up is that baptism is a sign of God's love and a ritualistic and sacramental assurance that we are loved. But I want to be very clear about this. God does not love us because we have been baptized. Rather, God gives us baptism because we are loved. It's something like a couple. Sure, they could choose to never actually get married and still live happily ever after. But something happens in a wedding. Commitments and intentions are shared. A relationship is celebrated, blessings are bestowed, and love is named in a profound, public, and transforming way. What I want to make sure is clear is that God does not begin to love us when we are baptized. Baptism is when we are immersed into this love so that we will always be confident of this love that resides in us through the gift of the Holy Spirit. Baptism gifts us with an event in time that concretizes God's love for us. So even if you were baptized as a baby and have no memory of baptism, we are assured by our parents, godparents, certificates, and church registers that it really did happen. There was a definitive event in world history in which God's love for us was proclaimed for all to see and know. Now, of course, there's a lot more to baptism than it just being about love, but love is the foundation of baptism. And for all of those other meanings of baptism, that's what the rest of the sermons in this series are about. But for today, let's spend some time in and on love. Our modern issue with love is that it often falls into one of two traps. The first is moralism, where love becomes a commandment, and love most certainly is not a commandment. We can be bludgeoned by love. We are told that we have to love God, and our neighbors, and our enemies, and ourselves. And yes, those are good things, but it can feel a bit daunting. 
When politicians or singers talk about love, it seems like love is the simple solution to all of our problems. If we could just love one another, all of our problems would magically go away. But we all know that's not how love works. Love can't be controlled. If you love someone, try as hard as you might, you cannot make yourself not love them. And if you don't love someone, you can't make yourself fall in love with them. That's why we call it falling. It's something that happens to us, not something that we are in control of. And so if we are constantly told to love people whom we find really hard to love, then we are being told to do the impossible. And that is a heavy burden for us to carry. When love is turned into moralism, it is resented and rejected as being too difficult. The other pitfall to love is sentimentality, when love becomes sappy and saccharine. If moralistic love is all about what we are supposed to do, the other side of the spectrum is that love is impotent and does nothing other than evoke warm fuzzies. Sentimental love is nothing more than a feeling, and sometimes it's not even a feeling. Sometimes it's just a passing thought. One theologian has said that it is not atheism that is the greatest threat to our faith, but sentimentality. A sentimental faith will run at the first sign of danger. It does not protect us against the storms of life. And ultimately, a sentimental faith has nothing in it worth living or dying for. A sentimental faith is one that is always focused on things that are intangible and cost us nothing. And so there are perversions, or we might call them perversions of the faith, that always talk about heaven. And ultimately, they trade in things that demand nothing of us and impact little here on earth. And understandably, this is why so many people reject faith, not because they reject the God of love, but they want nothing to do with a sentimental faith that accomplishes nothing. So how then do we understand love in a way that is not moralistic or sentimental? Well, the best way to answer that sort of question is always the same. And it's a problem that we have in our culture. We think of everything from our point of view. But if we think of love first, not as something that we have to do, but as something that we are given, well, then it changes everything. And we have to know how to read this passage from 1 Corinthians before we jump into it. Otherwise, we will completely miss the point. To put this as clearly as I can, 1 Corinthians 13 is not about weddings. Now, I am guilty of having this passage read at our wedding, and chances are you are too. This passage, though, is not associated with weddings because if we do that, it becomes a sentimentalized sort of love where it's just all about the love that the couple has and it's about the emotional charge of the day. Or it becomes a moralistic love where the couple thinks that that's what their marriage is supposed to be like. That they are never supposed to be envious or boastful, arrogant, rude, or irritable. If you can get through the honeymoon with none of those feelings, <laughs> exactly, you're doing better than most. Marriage, by definition, is two sinners choosing to become one flesh together. 
but the sinner part doesn't go away. And so if we take this passage to be the model for marriage, we will absolutely fail, often multiple times a day. And that is because this passage is not about us. You might remember last Sunday, we read from the previous chapter in which St. Paul talked about the church as the body of Christ with various parts and functions. The point was that every part of the body is necessary and we can only function together as a unit, not individually. Christianity is not a solitary exercise. But there were issues in that Corinthian church. Factions were forming and people were developing an air of superiority over one another, saying things like, well, you know, I am the eyes of the body. And well, you, you're the belly button. So I deserve all of this privilege and status because of who I am. It's not really a wedding where this passage is appropriate, but rather the court appointed mediator's office. This is why St. Paul begins as he does. If I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And the same thing he says goes for prophetic powers or the sort of faith that can move mountains or practicing charity by giving away all of our possessions or even giving our body over to martyrdom. Without love, we are told these are nothing. And what's so interesting about the sentence is that it does not say, if I do not love, rather it says, if I do not have love. It's a subtle but very real difference. Love is not something that we are to produce or to do. Love is something that we receive. If we are not aware of God's love for us, then everything we do is just sound and fury signifying nothing. Without God's love at our core, though we might be doing the right thing for the wrong reason, eventually our luck is going to run out and we will start doing the wrong thing for the wrong reasons. Receiving God's love is what enables us to participate in that love by rejoicing in it and sharing it. Love does not seek to be rewarded. Rather, love, wherever it exists, is both rewarded and rewarding because God is love. In Jesus Christ, God seeks to implant this love in us so that God's blessings of abundant life can flourish in us. And as a proof and an example of this love, God took on flesh in Jesus and showed us love's full measure. Jesus is patient with our sins and our inability to understand him. Jesus is kind and is our good shepherd. Jesus is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. Rather, Jesus exudes the joy and the peace of God in all things. Jesus is not irritable or resentful. Though we did our worst to him on the cross, he lavishes us with mercy. Jesus does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rather he is the truth in which we rejoice. Jesus believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, meaning that there is no situation, no uncertainty, no disease, no addiction, no doubt, 